Help, I need someone to talk to about true crime. Will you join Will me? You join me? Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Welcome to a brand new episode of True Crime Consultant. My name is Isla, and I'm a management consultant during the day and a true crime consultant at night. And before we continue, I just want to say episode one dropped last week Sunday we discussed the case of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett if you've listened to it and you'd like to share your thoughts with me please do I'd love to hear your thoughts of the case and what you think happened you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime Consultant share your thoughts with me I'd love it if you did if you have not listened yet to episode one uh, please go listen. I think you'll find it interesting. Thank you for being here again today with me. We have a very interesting case to discuss today. It is the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. And when Natalie went missing, she was 18 years old and I was eight at the time that she went missing. And she went missing in Aruba. It's an island part of the Dutch Kingdom and one of the main suspects in this case is a Dutch guy. So it was a pretty big thing uh, growing up in the Netherlands where I grew up. So I could not escape it, but I really remember very well, even though I was only eight, I remember so well, you know, her case being discussed on the news, you know, when she just went missing, asking my mom, you know, is she gonna be okay? Are they gonna find her? I kept hoping that they would find her, but now that I'm older, and I have this platform, I kind of want to shed some light on Natalie's case because this is just one of these cases that deserves to be in people's minds and memories. I know that Natalie's mom, Beth, has never given up her search for the truth. I also know that, at least to my knowledge, not a lot of podcasts have discussed Natalie's case and I really genuinely believe that Natalie deserves her platform as well to have her story told, which is why I wanna discuss this case today. For those who do know Natalie Holloway's case or for those who do not, please join me as we discuss the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. It was Memorial Day in 2005 and my phone rang from a number that I didn't recognize. They tell me that my daughter Natalie is missing and that no one has seen her. Snap, you know, it's instant. Something is terribly wrong. I had to get to Aruba now. So for today's case, I will be taking you to Aruba. And for those of you not familiar with Aruba, it is an island in the Dutch Caribbean, off of the coast of Venezuela. It is one of four countries that make up the Kingdom of the Netherlands, together with Curaçao, St. Martin, and of course, the Netherlands. Now the citizens of all of these countries are all Dutch nationals and I myself was actually born in Curaçao. Now Aruba, Curaçao and St. Martin are all beautiful islands. They have gorgeous white sandy beaches, great food and warm, very kind locals. So to me it is not surprising that people come here on vacation or that a group of fresh high school graduates from the United States would choose this as a destination to celebrate their graduation. In May 2005, Natalie Holloway was part of a large group of students that had flown to Aruba to celebrate finishing high school. She was, however, the only one not to return home to Alabama. So what happened to Natalie? 
We'll start with, I think, one of the more important questions. Who was Natalie Holloway? You see, Natalie was so much more than just her disappearance. Before she went missing, 18-year-old Natalie was a whole human being with her own dreams, ambitions, goals. She had family and friends who cared deeply about her. Oh my god, if you hear that sound, I think you can hear my dog. My dog is snoring in the background. I'm so sorry. Where was I? Right, so Natalie was a whole human being. She was so much more than just her disappearance. Natalie Holloway was the first of two children and she was born on October 21st, 1986 in Memphis, Tennessee. Her parents are Dave and Elizabeth or Beth Holloway. Dave and Beth got divorced in 1993 and Natalie and her younger brother went to live with their mother. In 2000, Beth married George Twitty, a prominent Alabama businessman, and the family moved to the close-knit community Mountain Brook, a suburb in Alabama. Natalie was a well-liked and popular classmate, and she achieved high grades as an ambitious and intelligent student. So it is no surprise that in 2005, Natalie graduated with honors from Mountain Brook High School. And during her high school career, Natalie was a member of the National Honor Society and she was also a member of the dance team and participated in other extracurricular activities. For example, she was a member of the American Field Service, helping exchange students adapt to life in the US. And thanks to her hard work and dedication during high school, Natalie had earned a full academic scholarship to the University of Alabama and she planned to study pre-medicine in order to qualify for a career as a pediatrician. And I think that this shows, you know, she had ambition, she had dreams, you know, she had things that she wanted to achieve. And of course, you know, she had worked hard for many years during high school. Now to me, it is very clear that Natalie deserved uh, to celebrate her graduation after working so hard to achieve that honors level that she did. So as part of her high school graduation celebration in 2005, Natalie and 124 of her fellow Mountain Brook High School graduates went on a celebratory trip to Aruba for five days. And this is where our case truly starts. Now before we get into specifics of what happened, I just want to give you a quick overview, a timeline of events, just so that you understand the bigger picture of the days leading up to Natalie's disappearance. And we'll go into detail after. So on May 24th, 2005, Natalie graduates high school. On May 26th, 2005, Natalie and 124 of her fellow graduates arrive on Aruba. The next three days are filled with beach time, a party time, drinking time, and an overall good time, of course. They're celebrating that they have graduated, so no surprise to me that they're just letting their hair down, going crazy. On May 29th, 2005 is the last night that the kids can go out before they head home the next day. And in the early hours of May 30th, 2005, at around 1.30 a.m., Natalie is last seen by her classmates leaving a nightclub in a car with three guys that she'd only met that night. And a couple of hours later, on May 30th, Natalie's classmates are ready to leave with their bags packed in the hotel lobby. When they notice that Natalie has not joined them, they find her passport and her packed bags in her hotel room, but they see that Natalie is missing. And this is when the panic sets in and the search for missing Natalie begins. So now we'll kind of zoom in and we'll discuss 
different aspects of this trip. To begin with the trip itself. Now, this high school celebration trip was, it wasn't a proper uh, high school field trip so you know there were lots of students and not so many chaperones and it wasn't really you know nothing was really as planned and the kids had quite a, a lot of freedom so they did have seven chaperones but the chaperones were just there to kind of monitor them from a distance and they did have daily check-ins to make sure that everyone was okay but overall the kids were mostly left to do their own thing according to a teacher and chaperone bob Plumber, the chaperones met with the students each day to make sure everything was fine. Jody Behrman, who organized the trip, said the chaperones were not supposed to keep up with everyone. And to me, this makes sense, right? Because it's not a proper high school field trip. It's it's a high school celebration trip. What did surprise me that so many people were there. I went on a high school uh, graduation trip and it was just like five, six of us, just like my close friend group. I went on a college graduation trip and that was about 12 of us. So. This the number of people here that went on this trip is insane. And the fact that there were chaperones at all, I think it's, I mean, it's quite nice. And it makes sense that they weren't there to, you know, observe their every move. Compared to, for example, when I went to Rome in Italy in my year, it was, I think about 100, 120 of us as well. And, but that was a proper high school field trip. Everything was planned into detail and our entire days were planned. It was the opposite. We did not have that much freedom at all. So I can definitely see the difference between these two types of trips. This is a lot of freedom all of a sudden for these kids. So maybe the parents also felt better if there were some chaperones with them, just in case, right? Police commissioner Gerald Dompig said that the Mountain Brook students engaged in wild partying, a lot of drinking, and lots of room switching every night. So it's just giving me like chaotic vibes. And the Holiday Inn, the hotel that they were staying in, had told them that they were not welcome next year. Now this doesn't surprise me. I mean, you have 124 students here together in one hotel, celebrating the graduation, drinking a lot. I'm sure that must have been very chaotic, very messy, and I can imagine other hotel guests not not really being happy with this. So it doesn't surprise me that this hotel was like, okay, 124 of you, not happening again. When I went to Rome, we had three different hotels, so they spread out the students over different hotels. I think one reason was that, you know, we were trying to be low budget, so the smaller hotels don't have room to accommodate that many students. But at the same time, I don't think they wanted that many of us in one space. So it was also a means of splitting us up to make sure that we weren't able to cause chaos in such big numbers. So, and then some more information on the trip. Apparently, according to statements from her fellow classmates, Natalie drank all day every day and there are statements that she started every morning with cocktails and she was drinking so much that natalie didn't show up for breakfast two mornings honestly if it were me i would probably also skip two breakfasts maybe all of them it would be hard to get me out of bed before 12 but that's me and according to two of natalie's classmates liz kane and Claire Fearman, they agreed that the drinking was kind of excessive. Now, I'm not sure if this was in regard to how much Natalie was drinking or in regard to how much everyone was drinking, but I'm not surprised that there was a lot of drinking involved. I mean, here you got a bunch of high school kids celebrating this amazing achievement of, of graduating high school. They're on an island, a Caribbean island, where the drinking age is 18 and where they come from, their drinking age is 21. So all of a sudden, they are legally allowed to drink they also have quite a lot of freedom you know no one's checking up on them no one's telling them what to do 
or what not to do. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that they were drinking a lot. They were letting the hair down, they were celebrating, they were having a good time. So the fact that you know there was excessive drinking does not surprise me at all. But what I'm what gives me kind of the ick is that people single out Natalie and and point to her and say, yeah, Natalie was drinking a lot and. On the one hand, I guess it makes sense because Natalie is the one that went missing, so everyone is talking about her. But I just don't like that they're making it seem like, in particularly, Natalie was drinking a lot. You know, she was starting every day with two cocktails, you know, etc., etc. To me, it, it doesn't feel fair to really point that out and single her out. You know what they could have just said everyone was drinking a lot we were having a good time I, I just it gives me an icky feeling that they're pointing out specifically natalie so then we have the night of may 29th 2005 and and as i said before this was the last night that the kids were able to party this was their last hurrah before they were going back right now natalie and some friends they went to a casino next to the holiday inn hotel now i'm not sure if this casino was attached to the Holiday Inn or whatever, but in any case, it was next door. And in this casino is where Natalie met Dutch 17-year-old Joram van der Sloot. And you might hear my accent, how I say it. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands, I speak Dutch, so, so I'm just pronouncing his name like you would pronounce it in Dutch. And apparently Joram was no stranger at this casino, and we'll get to that a little later. But in any case, they met at that casino. Later that night, Natalie, Joram, some of her friends, some of his friends, they went to this restaurant, bar, and nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's and they partied a lot, they continued drinking and this is where Natalie was actually last seen. Her friends saw Natalie leave the club and get in a silver Honda at around 1.30 a.m. with Joran van der Sloot, 17, and his two Surinamese friends, Deepak Kalpo, 21, and the owner of the car, and Satish Kalpo, 18. And these two were brothers, the Kalpo brothers. And one thing I want to ask is, why did Natalie's friends not stop her? And then another thing I want to tell you as a reminder, never get in a car by yourself with three guys you just met, Never leave your friends in any case and never let your friend get in a car with three guys she just met, please. Now, of course, everyone must have been drunk. So maybe by the time her friends noticed that Natalie was about to like get in this car, maybe Natalie was too far away from them. You know, they, they, it was too far for them to catch up to her and to like stop her because I would hope that if she was with them and they saw her leave, and, and she was right there, she, they would grab her and be like, no, you're not leaving with these guys, what the hell? It's what I would do. I'd rather fight my friend and have her not like me for a little bit than let her leave with some stranger, danger guys that she only just met a couple hours ago. But in any case, I don't want to point the finger to anyone. I'm just saying that you listening, please watch out for your friends. As a reminder, now since she was last seen with Joram, he quickly became a prime suspect in Natalie's disappearance. And as you will soon hear, he is frequently mentioned throughout the investigation and plays quite a central role. So I just want to give you some background on Joram moving forward. Now on the outside, it looked like Joram had a pretty decent and privileged childhood. He was born in the Netherlands, in the city of Arnhem, on August 6th, 1987. His dad was a lawyer, his mom was an art teacher. In the 90s, he moved with his family to Aruba, where he later became an honor student at the International School of Aruba. And apparently, he was also quite athletic, 
and it was good at tennis and football or soccer, whichever you prefer, but I, on the European continent, prefer to say football. But not everything was good grades and good athletic performances for Joran. When he was 16, him and his girlfriend broke up. Of course, you know, teenage love, very painful. And to deal with the breakup, he started going out more. He seemed to find comfort in the Aruban nightlife with all these beautiful tourists, a never-ending rotation of beautiful tourists for Joran to seek comfort with. And this is something that I find very odd because he moved out of his bedroom in his parents' house into the guest room uh, that his parents had in their backyard uh, so that no one could see what he was up to. And that is really weird because my brother, Steven, if he uh, asked my mom or my stepdad, you know, can I move out to the guest house in the backyard so I can kind of do my own thing? There is no way that they would let him do that. Absolutely no way. They want to make sure as good as possible that he's not coming home at all hours and leaving at all hours and bringing home random girls. So the fact that his parents let him move into the guest house in the garden is really weird to me, but okay. And another interesting thing is something that Joran's mother said, and I don't know exactly when she said this but it was definitely quite a few years after Natalie went missing and I believe it was an interview with a Dutch uh, news channel so Joran's mother had said in an interview that Joran had problems with compulsive lying and often snuck out of the house to go to casinos so maybe this is also why they let him you know do their thing because he was gonna lie anyways and he was gonna sneak out anyways so maybe they were like you know what go live in that guest house and do what you want because you're gonna do it anyways but the fact that he was often going to casinos uh, brings me back to the casino where natalie met him he was not a stranger to that casino because apparently he would frequent these casinos looking for young pretty tourists to kind of hit it up with and, and maybe take them back to his guest house or whatever and now that you know who yoran is we can continue the story Natalie was last seen with Joran and his two friends, Deepak and Satish Kalpo, leaving a nightclub in the early hours of May 30th, 2005. So the next morning, or the same morning, after everyone had been clubbing, uh, they were in the hotel lobby with their bags packed, ready to go to the airport to fly back home to Alabama. But then her friends and fellow graduates and some chaperones started noticing that Natalie was not there in the lobby with them where she should have been waiting. I'm sure initially they must have just thought that she was still in bed sleeping. She had missed breakfast a couple times before during this trip, so... I think that they felt that something similar was going on. So some of her friends along with some chaperones went up to her hotel room to check on her and see where she was at. I'm sure that they figured they'd just have to wake her up and get her ready to go. So they get up there, maybe they're knocking. Natalie, wake up, we gotta go. She doesn't open the door. But then, and I'm not sure how they got into the room, maybe with the help of housekeeping or a manager or whatever. But in any case, they were able to open the door to her room. And that is when they saw that her bags were packed and her passport was on the table in her room. And everything seemed normal except for the fact that Natalie was not there. Now, obviously, this was very alarming to everyone there. So they immediately 
kind of spread out. They started looking through the hotel and around the hotel. Maybe she'd gone for a walk. I think the stress levels definitely increased at this point. But then they noticed, they were like, this is bad. We really can't find her. She's supposed to be here. So the chaperones immediately called Aruban authorities and you know they came to the hotel room and they saw the same thing that they saw, her packed bags in her room, no passport, something is wrong. So at that point, the search for Natalie Holloway had, had started. And soon after they discovered that Natalie was missing a chaperone had contacted her mother and her stepfather and had told them that they were unable to locate Natalie after she'd failed to show up for their flight home. But this must have been extremely worrying and troublesome news to hear for Natalie's parents and I cannot even begin to imagine what that must have been like for them to get a phone call like that. Now it did not take long for Natalie's parents to take action following the news that Natalie had not made it to her flight. As within hours following the news about Natalie, her mother and stepfather flew with a couple of friends to Aruba by private jet. And as soon as they landed, her parents headed to the hotel and they started questioning her classmates and friends and the hotel manager. And they tried to gather as much information as possible about the last time that their daughter was seen. And within four hours of landing on the island, Beth and George, George being Natalie's stepmother, presented the Aruban police with the name and address of Joran van der Sloot, the person with whom Natalie left the nightclub. Beth stated that van der Sloot's full name was given to her by the night manager at the Holiday Inn, who supposedly recognized him on a videotape. And this makes sense, like I said before, Joran was no stranger to this area. He was no stranger to these casinos. And of course, like I also said, her parents had received information from her friends, you know, that remembered Natalie was talking to this guy. She left with this guy. Honestly, quick thinking, quick work by her parents. They were not just gonna show up and do nothing and wait for police to do things. They decided to take action. So then Natalie's mom, Beth, her stepdad, George, some of their friends and two Aruban police officers went to Joran van der Stoet's house. That they were going to ask him, you know, where is she? What do you know? Now Joran initially denied knowing Natalie's name, but he then told a story which was corroborated and somewhat even directed by Deepak Kalpo, who was also at the house. Now Joran said that they drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach, wanted to see sharks. They later dropped Natalie off at her hotel at around 2 a.m. And according to Yoran, as you know, she exited the car, Natalie fell down and he tried to help her, but Natalie was like, don't touch me, don't help me. And I think here he was kind of insinuating uh, that Natalie was drunk. I'm not sure what he was trying to do with that. Or maybe he was trying to let them know, you know, that he was a helpful guy and he wasn't a bad guy, whatever. And apparently as Joran was telling his story, Deepak was like standing next to him. At some points he would, you know, come in and he would take over parts of the story. As a Joran was not giving, you know, the correct version of events that they had uh, decided to tell the police, which is definitely very sus because you would think if they were there together, Joran would just remember what happened and and it wouldn't be that complicated to remember you know why does he need Deepak's help telling the story and then the last part of Joran's story was that as he and the Kalpo brothers were driving away Natalie was approached by a dark man in a black shirt similar to those worn by security guards 
So he says, you know, we're driving away. I look behind me. I see, I see a dark guy kind of dressed like a security guard approach Natalie. And that's, that's all that I saw. Okay, you know, this is his story. Okay, well, at that point, you know, there's, there's nothing that they can really do. So they kind of have to take a story for what it is and, and use it and to move forward. So that's that. Now, the search and rescue efforts for Natalie began immediately. So, of course, her parents were out there interviewing Yoron. But behind the scenes, hundreds of volunteers from Aruba and the United States joined in the efforts. During the first days of the search, the Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants a day off to participate in the rescue effort, which is crazy. The Aruban banks also raised $20,000 and provided other support to aid volunteer search teams. In addition to this, 50 Dutch marines also conducted an extensive search of the shoreline. They checked the beaches and even had divers check the waters surrounding the island. So it was it was really a very extensive, very elaborate, thorough search for Natalie. And this scale was you know, it was massive. So it's a very elaborate effort to find Natalie between Aruba, the Netherlands, and the United States. So the immediate response after Natalie went missing was very insane. People were very quick to act. The pressure was definitely there and the urgency was also really there. And I think very important in this are Natalie's parents who immediately came into action and did not hesitate to take action to spread the word, to get their friends and family and everyone involved. And and for Aruba, Aruba is an island that uh, really depends on tourism. So I think the fact that they were reacting so quickly and so on such a huge scale, I don't think I'm saying anything shocking, I hope, when I say that I think part of that was to mitigate any bad press. Because of course, if a young, beautiful American teenager goes missing on an island like this, it might taint Aruba's reputation. Now we'll get into arrests and all that. There were quite a few suspects that police had on their radar. Now on June 5th, six days after Natalie went missing, Aruban police detained Nick John and Abraham Jones, two former security guards from the nearby Allegro Hotel which was at the moment closed for renovations. They detained them on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. Authorities have never officially disclosed the reason for their arrests, but according to various news accounts, statements made by Yoram and the Calpo brothers may have been a factor in their arrest. Now, if you remember in the original version that Yoran and Deepak told Natalie's parents and the police was that, you know, as they were driving away, that Yoran saw a dark man approach Natalie and he was kind of dressed like a security guard. So this might have pointed police in the direction of these two guys, Nick and Abraham. Now reports also indicated that the two former guards were also known for cruising hotels to pick up women. And at least one of them had a prior incident with law enforcement. But Nick John and Abraham Jones were released not long after they were arrested on June 13th, 2005, 
without being charged. There simply was no evidence whatsoever that they were involved in Natalie's disappearance. Then on June 9th, 2005, 10 days after Natalie went missing, Joran von der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers were arrested on suspicion of the kidnapping and murder of Natalie Holloway. Now, Aruban law allows for investigators to make an arrest based on serious suspicion. Now, in order to continue holding the suspect in custody, an increasing evidential burden must be met at periodic reviews. So they can arrest them based on serious suspicion. But as time goes on, the idea is that they do continue to gather evidence that really can kind of prove that they actually are in jail for what you know the police think that they did that they were part of the crime that was committed and according to the police commissioner at the time Gerald Dompik he was the guy who said that you know there was lots of wild partying and drinking and the hotel didn't want the teenagers back anymore according to him the focus of the investigation centered on these three suspects from the get-go and he also stated that Close observation of the three men began three days after Natalie was reported missing, and the investigation included surveillance, telephone wiretaps, and even monitoring of their email. Dompik indicated that pressure from Natalie's family caused the police to prematurely stop their surveillance and detain the three suspects. So I think the police was kind of playing a little bit of a longer waiting strategy and, and really waiting for the three guys to incriminate themselves either through text or phone calls or whatever but i can also imagine from natalie's family side that you know they just are desperate for someone to be arrested and they want to know where their daughter is because at this point it's still early on in the investigation natalie's been missing for about two weeks not even yet 10 days and they're hoping, you know, maybe she's still alive. On June 17th, disc jockey Steve Gregory Cruz was also arrested. Now, apparently Cruz was detained based on information from one of the three other detainees. So from either Yoram, Deepak or Satish. On June 22nd, 2005, Aruban police detained Yoram's father, Paulus von der Sloot, for questioning. He was then arrested on the same day. So detained and arrested are not the same thing. Now, both Paulus Joran's father and the disc jockey were ordered to be released on June 26, 2005. And during this period, the suspects, Joran, Deepak, and Satish, who had been detained, changed their stories on multiple occasions. Now, first, all three indicated that Joran and Natalie were dropped off at the Marriott Hotel Beach near the fisherman's hut. Joran stated that he did not harm Natalie, but that he did leave her on the beach. According to Kalpo's attorney, David Koch, Yoran called Deepak Kalpo to tell Deepak that he was walking home and he sent him a text message 40 minutes later. And at some time during the interrogation, Yoran detailed a third account that he was dropped off at home and Natalie was driven off by the Kalpo brothers. But the police did not believe this version of events. They felt that the latest version of Yoran's story kind of came as he started feeling that the Kalpo brothers were mainly blaming him. So he kind of wanted to finger point back to them as well. You know, the stories did not match the version of events that Yoran gave just did not make sense. So they do believe the second story that they were dropped off by the Marriott uh, at that beach. Now, following hearings before a judge, the Calpo brothers were released on Monday, July 4th, 2005. But Yoran was detained for another 60 days. 
The search for Natalie continued. You know, despite the police having made a couple of arrests, they were still looking for Natalie, even if it was just for her body. On July 4th, 2005, the Royal Netherlands Air Force deployed three F-16 aircraft equipped with infrared sensors to aid in the search. Now, apparently, they were looking for unexpected shifts of ground that might have been Natalie's grave, which is very daunting. Then, after a local gardener came forward with information, a small pond near the Aruba Racket Club, close to the Marriott Hotel Beach, was partly drained between July 27th and July 30th. 2005. Now, according to Natalie's stepfather, the gardener claimed to have seen Joran attempting to hide his face as he drove into the racket club with the Calpo brothers on the very early morning of May 30th between 2.30 a.m. and 3 a.m. Another person, a jogger, we don't know their name, claimed to have seen men burying a blonde-haired woman in a landfill during the afternoon of May 30th. The police had searched the landfill in the days following Natalie's disappearance. After their jogger's statements, the landfill was searched three more times. The FBI even used cadaver dogs to assist in the recovery operation, but the searches were fruitless. And I honestly don't know, I don't know what to think of these two testimonies because they're very specific, but they both led to nothing. So I don't know if these guys misremembered, but then how do you misremember seeing two guys burying a blonde haired woman? I don't know, it doesn't make much sense to me. Now, another thing to point out is that Natalie's family initially offered $175,000 for her safe return and donors offered another 50,000 on top of that. So that brings it to $225,000 for a safe return. And two months after her disappearance in July, the reward was increased from 200,000 to $1 million for a safe return with $100,000 reward for information leading to the location of her remains. In August, 2005, the reward for information leading to Natalie's remains was increased from $100,000 to $250,000. And this just shows that perhaps Natalie's family did not believe that she was still alive, but they just wanted to bring her home and, and say goodbye and lay her to rest. So now we have a situation where the Calpo brothers and Yoron have all been arrested once already and there have been quite a few searches since Natalie went missing. So Natalie went missing on May 30th. Now it's August 26th and the Calpo brothers were re-arrested along with another new suspect, 21-year-old Freddie Arambazis. Now Freddie's lawyer said that his client was suspected of taking photographs of an underage girl and having inappropriate physical contact with the same girl. This incident allegedly occurred before Natalie disappeared and Freddie's friends, Joran and the Calpro brothers, were supposedly involved in the incident. Now Joran's mother, Anita van der Sloot, stated that it's a desperate attempt to get the boys to talk, but there is nothing to talk about. While no public explanation was then made for the Calpo re-arrest, the police commissioner later said that it was an unsuccessful attempt to pressure the brothers into confessing. Then a couple days later, on September 3rd, 2005, the four detained suspects were released by a judge despite attempts of the prosecution to keep them in custody. So remember, Joran was still under arrest and then the Calpo brothers were rearrested and then also 
this Freddy guy was also arrested, right? So the suspects were released on the condition that they remain available to police. And on September 14th, 2005, all restrictions on them were removed. And, you know, still, which is so frustrating, still there was not enough evidence to keep them arrested. And unless anyone was actually going to confess, there was not much law enforcement could do. There was just really nothing for them to go off of. Then we fast forward a little. Not a lot happened after this 2005 re-arrest of the Kalpo brothers and Yoram. We moved to 2006. So now we've discussed a couple of arrests and re-arrests in 2005. We had Yoram van der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers who were you know, who the police were looking at early on. We had the two security guards, Nick John and Abraham Jones, who had been arrested. We had the disc jockey, Steve Gregory Cruz, and of course, Joran's father, Paulus van der Sloot, who were arrested and released. And we had the 24-year-old friend of the Calpo brothers, Freddy, who was arrested, and the police admitted that they did that to try to uh, lure the brothers into confessing. So, so far, eight people have been arrested in connection to Natalie's disappearance. That was only in 2005. Now we're moving to 2006. The search for Natalie or Natalie's body, her remains is still ongoing, but the search for whoever did this to Natalie is also still ongoing. Now on April 15th, 2006, this was the first arrest of 2006, a guy named Jeffrey von Kromvoort was arrested by Aruban authorities on suspicion of criminal offenses related to dealing in narcotics, which according to the prosecutor might have been related to the disappearance of Natalie. At his first court appearance, his detention was extended by eight days. Van Komvoort was however released on April 25th, 2006. And in addition, another individual with the initials AB was arrested on April 22nd, but released the same day. So now we have 10 people in total who have been arrested in connection to Natalie's case. Then on May 17th, 2006, another suspect, Guido Weaver, the son of a former Aruban politician, was detained in the Netherlands on suspicion of assistance Existing in the abduction, battery, and killing of Natalie Holloway. Guido Waver was questioned for six days in the Netherlands, and Ruben prosecutors initially sought his transfer to the island, but he was instead released by agreement between the prosecutor and Guido Waver's attorney. Now, I believe that there was simply, again, there was just not enough, if any, evidence at all tying him to Natalie's disappearance. So now the count is at 11 people arrested in connection to Natalie without any proper answers, basically. At Aruba's request, the Netherlands took over the investigation in 2006. A team of Dutch National Police started working on the case in September of 2006. It's more than a year since Natalie went missing. I'm surprised that they hadn't requested this help earlier, if you know what I mean. Now, in 2006, not a lot happened, as you can tell. There were a couple of people arrested, but these kind of feel like random arrests that did not lead to anything. A couple names that seemed to have randomly fallen from the sky. So now we move on to 2007. Now in 2007, Joran published a book. A book by Joran 
and reporter Svetlana Vukojevic, the Zach Natalie Holloway, or the case of Natalie Holloway, was published in Dutch in April 2007. In the book, Joron gives his perspective of the night Natalie disappeared and the media frenzy that followed. In his book, he admits to lying at the beginning, but he apologizes for these untruths as well and maintains his innocence. On April 16, 2007, a combined Aruban Dutch team began pursuing the investigation in Aruba. Then, after Joran releases his book, on April 27th, a new search involving approximately 20 investigators was launched at the Vandersloot family residence in Aruba. Dutch authorities searched the yard and surrounding area using shovels and thin metal rods to penetrate the dirt. Now, a spokeswoman for the prosecution stated that the investigation has never stopped and the Dutch authorities are completely reviewing the case for new clues, for any new insights. Now, they did not say what led to this new search of the van der Sloot residence, but all they said was um, that they found some new clues or whatever, but they did say that it was not related to the book that Joran published. Now, according to Josie Mansour, a managing editor of Aruba's Diario newspaper. He said that investigators were following up on statements made during early suspect interrogations regarding communications between the Calpo brothers and Joram. He also said that investigators could be seen examining a laptop at the house. Clearly, they were hoping to find something that Joram and the Calpo brothers had discussed, something that would implicate them or give them any hints and insights as to where Natalie's remains are. So in April, Joram's family residence is searched. Then. On May 12, 2007, the Calpo family residence was searched by the authorities. April, May, family residences of Joran and the Calpo brothers were searched. Unfortunately, nothing was found that would lead them to Natalie's remains. Then, all is not lost. In 2007, there were a couple of new uh, re-arrests. Now, citing what was described as newly discovered evidence, Aruban investigators arrested Joran van der Sloot and the Calpo brothers on November 21st, 2007. So at this point, it's already two years since Natalie disappeared. They were arrested on suspicion of involvement in manslaughter and causing serious bodily harm that resulted in the death of Natalie Holloway. Joran was detained by Dutch authorities in the Netherlands. I think he was studying there at the time while the Calpo brothers were detained in Aruba. Joran was returned to Aruba, where he was then incarcerated. Soon after, Dave Holloway, Natalie's father, announced a new search for his daughter that probed the sea beyond the original 330-foot or 100-meter depths in which earlier searches had taken place. That search involved a vessel called the Persistence and was abandoned, unfortunately, due to a lack of funds at the end of February 2008, when nothing of significance was found. Then on November 30th, 2007, which is nine days after Joran and the Calpo brothers were re-arrested, a judge ordered the release of the Calpo brothers. Despite attempts by the prosecution to extend their detention, the brothers were released on the following day. Prosecution appealed the release, which was denied on December 5th, with the 
court writing, notwithstanding expensive and lengthy investigations on her disappearance and on people who could be involved, the file against the suspect does not contain direct indications that Natalie passed away due to a violent crime. Yoron was released without charge on December 7, 2007, due to a lack of evidence implicating him as well as a lack of evidence that Natalie died as a result of a violent crime. Prosecution indicated it would not appeal. They simply did not have any counter arguments or evidence. So I guess in this case, the fact that Natalie's body has not been found, no body, no crime, I guess, is kind of what they're saying. There's no proof that she died as a result of a violent crime and all we know at this point is that she was last seen with Joran and the Capo brothers. A lot of different scenarios are possible and they just had no idea what happened to her and as much as that they wanted to arrest someone they just couldn't. There was not enough evidence or any indication of what happened to Natalie. Now on December 18th 2007 a prosecutor named Hans Moos officially declared the case closed and that no charges would be filed due to a lack of evidence. The prosecution indicated a continuing interest in Joran von der Sloot and the Kalpo brothers, though legally they ceased to be suspects. That was 2007. You know, in 2007, we had the re-arrests, but also, again, re-releases. In 2008, something interesting happens, and but I'll zoom on that in next episode, because in 2008, Joran essentially admits to involvement in Natalie's disappearance under the influence of marijuana and this admission of guilt was actually recorded, it was videotaped and after this interview Joran gave another interview to Fox News in which he again gave another admission, another version of events. So in 2008 two pretty shocking interviews with Joran but I will elaborate on those in next episode. I just wanted to have said that because, you know, not a lot happens after 2007. In 2008, you have interviews of Joran von der Sloot changing his stories again. In March 2009, Dave Holloway, Natalie's dad, he transported a search dog to Aruba to search a small reservoir in the northern part of the island. The reservoir was previously identified by a supposed witness as a possible location of Natalie's remains. Aruba authorities indicated that they had no new information in the case but that Dave had been given permission to conduct a search. I don't think anything was found. So that was 2009. Then we go all the way to 2010. In March 2010, underwater searches were conducted by Aruban authorities after an American couple reported that they were snorkeling when they photographed what they thought might be human skeletal remains, possibly those of Natalie. Aruban authorities sent divers to investigate, but no remains were ever recovered. So this is what we have. We have a case essentially gone cold at this point, right? Natalie went missing on May 30th, 2005. Quickly after she went missing, there are a couple of arrests of, of different suspects. I think in total, from beginning to end, about 11 people were arrested in con connection to Natalie's disappearance. But of course, mainly Joran and the Kalpo brothers were of interest as they had been arrested and re-arrested two or three times from 2005 until 2007. So the, I guess the main years where the investigation was still hot 
were of course 2005 2006 less 2007 you know less you can as as any unsolved case year after year it just goes colder and colder because less and less information is at authorities disposal to use and to investigate right so this is the same situation here and essentially what you have in 2010 nothing really happens anymore until something does until Joran von der Sloot does something which completely shifts the conversation and the narrative surrounding Joran von der Sloot and we will get into that next week because yes people this is a two-parter this is part one I did not want to announce this as part one right away because I wasn't sure <laughs> at the beginning if I was gonna make this into a two-parter but it is a two-parter there is a lot more to discuss what I have discussed so far is pretty much all of the information about the investigation surrounding Natalie's disappearance what happens next is very interesting but has more to do with Joran's behavior than specifically with Natalie's disappearance but I do think that you know the actions of Joran definitely show what kind of a person he is and might have something to say about you know whether or not he did have a role to play in Adelie's disappearance and to what degree so what we will discuss next week we will kind of go over the different versions of events that Joran has given because I think at this point he's given five or six different versions at least of the night that Natalie went missing. We're going to discuss Joran's attempt of extorting Natalie's parents. We're going to discuss a heinous act committed by Joran von der Sloot. We're going to go over different theories people have of what happened to Natalie. I'll give my own theory of what I think happened to Natalie. I'll give some recent developments and talk about what's next. So a lot more interesting things that we will discuss next week. I hope that I was able to give you kind of a better understanding regarding Natalie's disappearance, regarding the investigation. As it stands, Natalie Holloway has never been found, her remains have never been located, and to this day, Joran van der Sloot, Deepak, Satish Kalpo, none of them have confessed anything whatsoever, and I really think at this point, unless Joran or one of the brothers or whoever, but specifically unless Joran confesses and finally tells the truth i don't think that we will ever know specifically without a doubt what happened to natalie that night and i'm not saying that she was murdered i, I definitely do believe that there is a, a chance that whatever happened was an accident but in any case Joran did not do himself any favors by being so secretive about it and by lying as much as he did but like his mom said he had a problem with compulsive lying we will get into all of those details more next week for now i hope that you have a good understanding of the days leading up to natalie's disappearance and how the investigation kind of went and of course who Joran is who we're dealing with but you'll also learn more about him next week so once again please reach out to me on instagram on tiktok at true crime consultant share your thoughts with me on this case maybe give me a follow spread the word about my new true crime podcast i'd really appreciate it again thank you so much for being here and i look forward to continue this conversation about natalie holloway's disappearance next week january 22nd which also is my birthday thank you so much for being here and i will see you guys next week have a have a safe week check in next week
Hi, my name is Isla Watson, and I am your true crime consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime.